Coming up, a conversation with historian Tal Howard, charting the origins of modern interreligious dialogue and the ways Christians have contributed to that story. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan Hummel, the director for university engagement at Upper House, and your podcast host once again uh, for this episode. This episode's topic of interreligious dialogue is one that lies close to my own intellectual interests. When I was a grad student and a and casting about for what topic I would study that combined diplomatic and religious history, I ended up landing on Christian Zionism. That is the movement of uh, Christians who argue for the support of the state of Israel based out of their Christian theological commitments and their Christian readings of the Bible. On the ground, this relationship or this movement of Christian Zionism involved a lot of relationships with Jewish people. And that was one of the main areas of interest I had. Christian Zionism has been talked about often as a political movement or as an ideology, and I was interested in it as an interreligious movement as well. And that's all to say that interreligious dialogue is very interesting to me, interesting to other people at Upper House. We see ourselves as a place that hopes to be a bridge between different communities on campus, and that includes a bridge between different religious communities or people with different religious commitments that can see Upper House as a place that is uh, engaging, welcoming, uh, and ultimately nourishing to their souls. UW itself has a number of hotspots that uh, have in the past pursued interreligious dialogue or at least studied it. That includes the Lubar Institute for the Study of the Abrahamic Traditions, which was in operation from about 2005 to 2016. Notable uh, for us here at Upper House because one of the earliest supporters of the Lubar Institute and of the Institute's founding director, uh, Professor Chuck Cohen, was our own Steve Brown and of the, of the Brown Foundation. Uh, and Steve was very supportive of the Lubar Institute. The successor to the Lubar Institute is the Center for Religion and Global Citizenry, which is active on campus now and is run by Ulrich Rosenhagen, uh, who also worked at the Lubar Institute back in the day. So with that backdrop of my own personal interest and with UW's uh, ongoing engagement with interreligious dialogue, and I just mentioned a few here, there's other parts of campus that are engaged in that as well. Uh, one that just comes to mind as I'm talking is uh, the local initiative in the Center for Healthy Minds. With that backdrop, we're excited on this episode to host historian Tal Howard. And Tal has produced one of the first histories of interreligious dialogue that tries to actually tell a story or give us an arc for how interreligious dialogue has developed, particularly in the modern period. Tal Howard is professor of humanities and history and holder of the Duesenberg Chair in Christian Ethics at Valparaiso University. He's also affiliated with Christ College, Valparaiso's Interdisciplinary Honors College. And he also serves as a senior fellow for the Lilly Fellows Program in Humanities and the Arts. And Tal has published numerous books on modern intellectual and religious history, 
The one we're talking with him about today is titled The Faith of Others, A History of Interreligious Dialogue by Yale University Press, and it came out just earlier in 2021. And in this episode, Tal is speaking to our own Eric Carlson, who directs our fellows program at Upper House and is a historian of early modern European intellectual and religious history. And Eric lectures regularly in UW's history department and in its religious studies program. And Eric does a great job of setting up the book and the direction of the conversation, so I'll leave the rest of that set up to him. With that, really excited to share with you this Upwards conversation between Tao Howard and Eric Carlson. Tao, welcome uh, to the Upwards podcast. Um, I'm so glad that you're able to join me uh, today. Um, and I thought we could start with some background on you. Uh, it's always interesting to me to hear how uh, people found their, uh, find their vocations. And as a historian myself, I'm aware that there are lots of different uh, routes that people take to arrive in the wonderful world of researching and writing about and teaching history. And so I'm curious about how you came to be an historian. Uh, was Did you catch the history bug at a young age, or was that something that you came to uh, later, or how did you, how did you arrive um, where you are in terms of doing history? Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on this podcast, and thanks for interest in my, uh, my book. Um, you know, in many respects, I am the product of a, the influence of a, a single individual, <laughs> I would think. I, uh, I did not have a very distinguished uh, high school track record, but I, I knew I could write pretty well, and so I signed up for, uh, to be a journalist as a, a communications major at the University of Alabama. Uh, I grew up in the, in the South in, in Alabama, and I remember I, I went to a Western Civ class, and the, the first day, the professor, Dr. George McClure, put the, um, the date on the, uh, on, on the blackboard, and um, I, I can't remember, it would have been like Wednesday, August something, 1980-something, and he asked the class, you know, what, what historical clues are here? And then he beginning to uh, sort of dissect what was in that. You know, he would talk about Wednesday and Woden's Day, and he was off and running talking about Norse mythology. And August uh, comes from Augustus Caesar, and he was talking about the Roman Empire. And before long, he was talking about the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar and the conception of time. And um, anyway, I, I thought this was almost like a magical skill that he had. And I, uh, I didn't necessarily immediately switch majors to history, but it wasn't. Uh, too much longer that I uh, that I ended up switching to to history, and um, sure, it's a more complicated uh, story. Um, but uh, that was one that was certainly one turning point and during my undergraduate that that shifted me pretty dramatically. And then you went straight from undergrad to your graduate program in history. That's right. Yeah, I, I uh, did. I ended up uh, double majoring in history and English literature, and also studied German as well. And I I went to a program in intellectual history at the University of Virginia. Uh, originally thinking I was going to do early modern Reformation Renaissance uh, studies, but I gravitated to more more um, uh, post French Revolution, so 19th and 20th century uh, European European intellectual history with a sort of a concentration of religious history and history of theology uh, for my, for my uh, doctoral work. Most of the work that you have done has dealt with uh, aspects of religious history and especially 
uh, the history of Christianity. I know you've written extensively on both Protestants and Catholics uh, in the modern period. Um, and so this makes me curious also about your religious background. If you um, could tell, tell us something about that, um, maybe comment on, do you see a connection between um, your own religious interests or commitments and the kind of historical questions that you've uh, pursued in your work? Uh, yes, you know, sometimes it's, it's difficult to untangle them all, <laughs> what, what, what drives one, what motivates one, and what, what interests you take up. But uh, I, um, I, I, I mean, currently, uh, my wife and I, we worship in, a, in an Anglican church. Uh, I have a Southern Baptist uh, background, but um, we've uh, worshiped in a number of churches. My wife actually has a Catholic background, so uh, we've had a lot of ecumenical interest and discussions, uh, discussions over the years. But I, I suppose one thing that drew me to modern intellectual history, um, you know, I guess was it was the religion question. You know, what what is the status and fate of Christianity in a post Enlightenment world and a modern world where, uh, you know, ideas of liberty and equality and fraternity, as the the, the French Revolution uh, mantra has it. Uh, what's the status and fate of Christianity in that uh, in that world and uh, I mean, of course, they're more particular interests, but that, that was probably a larger driving uh, question. Uh, I was interested in earlier stages of my life, the, you know, some of the great critiques of religions made by, you know, Karl Marx and Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud uh, and others. Um, and I suppose I've written quite a bit about this, the academic theology and the history of the university and as someone who finds himself um, you know, in the university and shaped by it. I think there's always been a sort of a nagging desire to kind of understand the, um, uh, the institutional and intellectual um, conditions and forces of academic, uh, of academic life. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, at uh, Valparaiso, where you now teach, uh, what, what kinds of courses uh, do you get to teach? Yeah, I, I teach in a wonderful uh, honors college. It's called Christ College. It was founded by a, a Lutheran pastor and scholar, O.P. Kretzman, um, and uh, it's a four years interdisciplinary um, uh, honors college. Uh, students can major in, we just call it major humanities, although some major in disciplines uh, as well. Uh, but I, I've taught a number of upper level courses. Um, uh, um, a moral history of the 20th century is one that I've taught recently um, related to this current book that we're going to be talking about a class called Christianity and other and other faiths that's you know talked a little bit about some of the uh, his, history and um, you know uh, current state of dialogue of, um, uh, of Christianity so I thought about this religious alterity religious others um, right now, I, I'm teaching in their, in their first year program, so I've been doing some of the great texts, um, Aristotle and the Bible and Sophocles and Plato, um, and I, I have something. When I was at Gordon College, I directed a great book honors college, so a lot of my pedagogy has been more uh, at the undergraduate level and um, more, more sort of textual, textual uh, focus. Wonderful. I'm a big fan myself of the... Um the great books approach to teaching some of these ideas and, and, and benefited myself as an undergrad greatly from, from that kind of an approach, which I think also has very much shaped the kinds of questions that I've been interested in. 
Um, let's turn to the book that we are talking about today, um, The Faves of Others, A History of Interreligious Dialogue, which was recently published by Yale University Press. And first, congratulations, uh, Tal, on, on this book. Um, it's the most recent in a long line of distinguished books that you've written uh, on a wide variety of topics in modern religious history and uh, the history of theology and Christian thought. Um, I first encountered your work when I was a graduate student working in, in uh, European intellectual history myself um, almost 20 years ago now and have been a fan of your scholarship and have learned a lot uh, from it ever since. I would love to hear um, about the genesis of this project. Um, I imagine uh, that your turn to the history of interreligious dialogue was in some ways um, sort of a natural extension of previous work that you had done. Um, and so I'm wondering, is, was there a particular event or, or experience or a question um, that led you to take up the project that resulted in this book? Yes, I mean, in some ways it's related to what I've written in the past, and in some ways it's a departure. Um, I found myself, while, while I was at Gordon College, in addition to working with the honors uh, program there, I was directing a center called the Center for Faith and Inquiry. And this is not too long after the events of 9-11, and uh, students, predominantly evangelical students at, at Gordon College, found themselves asking, uh, well, you know, what happened at 9-11? What's, what, what's Islam's relation to the West? Uh, you know, what, what do Muslims believe? Um, and uh, those types of questions. So I found one of the best way, working with my colleague, one of the best ways to handle that was actually to invite different uh, Muslim scholars and also from other backgrounds. We had a, a number of dialogues and uh, trialogues involving um, rabbis uh, as well. And um, I, uh, I found myself, uh, keep using, I keep using that phrase because I, I guess sometimes your own life seems passive to you. You just, you just happen to be, you're doing this and now you're doing that. And, uh, and sometimes the uh, connecting tissue is not, not known to you. But anyway, I, um, uh, I began to ask, uh, what is this phrase interfaith dialogue or interreligious dialogue? I, I realized that we all had recourse to it to uh, explain what we were doing and what we were up to. Uh, and as I began to investigate, I found there's just a, uh, you know, a profusion of uh, interfaith centers, interfaith initiatives, uh, alliances, statements. Uh, I mean, you could Google this today, you literally get thousands of these things, not just in the United States, but, you know, throughout the world. And um, as I thought about it more, it, it seemed like most things that are written are, um, by practitioners so, or by theologians that thought about it uh, theologically. And I, I just began to think this is really a historical phenomenon. It really hasn't been historicized properly. Many people are engaged in it. Uh, they want to do it for ethical reasons, for uh, peace building, to uh, try to um, uh, you know, for cooperation in a variety of fronts. And I thought that really there isn't, hasn't been that this much uh, sort of intentional efforts of interfaith dialogue, um, you know, in, in the past. So I, I began to ask myself, well, where did this concept come from? And the Germans have a great phrase, the history of a concept. Um, and so uh, I guess in short, it was an attempt to historicize what I thought was a, a fairly large and 
uh, important concept that had mainly been approached through theological uh, lenses or, or the lenses of practitioners, people who you know, desire to actually do uh, organized interface dialogues of some sort or, or another. I think I'd like to like for us to get into some of the the specifics of the history that uh, that you uh, recount the, the story that you're that you're telling in this book. But before we um, get there, I wonder if you could give us uh, a quick overview of the, what the main uh, what the main storyline is or what the main claim is uh, that you're making uh, in the faith of faith of others. Yeah, I would, you know, I might be echoing some things that I, I just said, but I, I think that um, it's a, a phenomenon that deserves its own history. I think that's probably the, one of the central uh, claims, uh, and that it's fairly well. I do think there are harbingers and anticipations of it in the past, as, as I lay out in my first chapter that we might uh, talk about. It's a it's a fairly recent phenomenon, um, and. Uh, and that uh, one can trace it through you know, certain key, uh, uh, key turning points. And uh, uh, I mean, that's the historical component that the, um, you know, in the conclusion, I you know, raise, you know, engage a little bit in some of the normative issues, but, uh, but I also claim that those who think about it theologically and those who would practice it um, would benefit uh, from um, you know, being able to put it, put it in some broader historical perspective. So as you mentioned, the, you organized the book around um, three case studies or some, some central moments um, in the modern history of interreligious dialogue starting uh, in the late 19th century and then moving into the 20th. Um, but as you, as you just alluded, also before you get there, um, you make the point that there were some important precursors to modern interfaith efforts that... Um, go back some time, really back through the medieval and even to the ancient worlds. Um, and um, so could you tell us what's a little bit about some of those antecedents, whether um, any, any of them particularly stand out to you as being significant and uh, whether we should think of them as preparing the ground in some way for modern uh, interreligious dialogue initiatives, or, or whether whether there's a clear sort of break between um, these earlier uh, examples and what happens um, when we get into the late modern period. Well, yeah. Well, I just said it was a. This is pro- predominantly a you know a modern movement, interfaith dialogue or interreligious interreligious dialogue. I think uh, most things in history are never wholly new. They're never invented from completely. Uh, Whole new thought, um, and uh, so I, I thought I would at least devote one chapter to thinking about precursors, or I, I titled the chapter "Harbingers of um, Types of Interfaith Dialogue." Dialogue about la lettre, if you will. And I, I suppose I'm really out of my depth. I'm, I'm not uh, a scholar of antiquity or, or the Middle Ages, but it was it was certainly fun reading about. Um, uh, some efforts to come come into dialogue. Some of these were often, you know, highly polemical exchanges. Uh, some were more ironic. Uh, probably three that stand out uh, would be uh, uh, one is the case, and and some I draw from the Christian world broadly, but some I, I a little farther afield, uh, especially in um, uh, the, the Muslim the Muslim world. 
but one would be uh, Nicholas of uh, Cusa, who was a, uh, a late medieval um, thinker and uh, a cardinal. Uh, and after the, um, uh, after the sack of Constantinople in 1453, of course, this is a huge turning point in world history where the, the Ottoman Empire begins to rise and a major flashpoint in Christian uh, Muslim relations. Uh, uh, he, you know, he sort of conceives of a, uh, you know, kind of a table where different ethnic groups and religious groups can come together and try to solve some of their some of their questions in a peaceful uh, peaceful manner. So that was not an actual dialogue, but just a literary one. But I thought that was a notable uh, example. Uh, Francis of Assisi is another example that uh, during one of the Crusades, uh, he, he wound up in Egypt and talked to uh, the, the Sultan there and stayed with him for a number of months. Uh, when you go to Assisi in uh, Italy today and you go to the Basilica named after St. Francis, you can actually see some of the relics of this exchange, some of the gift exchange between uh, Francis and the Sultan. And so he, he's often held up as a Harbinger, an exemplar, early exemplar of interfaith dialogue, and, and the current Pope, Pope Francis, has called attention on numerous occasions to this to this exchange. Um, and then, and then the final example, and this is where we're going uh, farther east here, is the um, uh, uh, Emperor Akbar, who was a Mughal emperor in the early modern period, late 1500s, 1600s, and he presided over a, a multi-religious realm in what is today northern India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, he seems to have had genuine curiosity about the faiths, different faiths, and would often assemble them and even, even built a um, sort of a special um, uh, a special architectural structure in Fatipur Sikri, uh, which is south of New Delhi, um, uh, which was his uh, imperial seat for a period. And he would gather not just um, uh, Muslim scholars, but Hindu scholars and uh, Jains and Zoroastrians, uh, some Jews, uh, and even even some uh, Christians as well. Uh, Jesuit missionaries came up from their mission outpost in Goa, often trying to convert Akbar uh, and uh, never never fully succeeding. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I thought all of those, uh, uh, you know, were, were examples of, um, of at least forms of interfaith dialogue. Uh, before the before the modern uh, uh, modern period, did you did you find that um, in the modern period that that people working in uh, interfaith work work interfaith dialogue were aware of these precursors? Um, are they consciously looking back towards the towards them, or um, do they form any part of the consciousness of of people in the modern period? Uh, to an extent, they, they do, especially the example of uh, Akbar um, and British imperial policy, which tried to keep a lid on the, some of the ethnic and religious strife in, in India as well, uh, often explicitly referenced Akbar in their own religious policy. So it was kind of in, in the air in the 19th and 20th uh, century uh, before the decline of the, of, of the British Empire. But you also see it explicitly um, uh, one event I profiled of the World's Parliaments of Religion in Chicago in 1893, and as organizers began to realize what they were up to, they thought this is kind of unprecedented. We, we haven't gotten just religious representatives from the world over to come around uh, and one around one table, so to speak. Uh, but as, as they looked for examples, they, they actually pointed back to Akbar, Akbar as, as, as well. Um, 
you know, at the time of the Second Vatican Council, I do profile one important Catholic event, and they, um, you know, there are some references to, uh, especially to Francis of Assisi that you that you see in that uh, uh, as well. So, yeah, in, in, in some sense, um, uh, some of the modern events, I, I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, overclaim uh, that they were recognized these precedents, but there there was something of a shadowing. Awareness, both of what they were up to, in some ways, was unprecedented, but it, but it had um, uh, some some precursors in the past. So you made reference now to the um, uh, to a couple of events that form um, the the really central portion of your book. These three case studies, where you look at three major events uh, in the history of the modern interfaith movement, and you start out with. Um, this world, world's parliament of religions that took place in Chicago in 1893 in connection with the, um, the World's Fair or the Columbian Exposition that was held in that year. Um, and then you fast forward about 30 years in the next chapter. You look uh, at the city of London and an event there that took place in 1924, the, um, what was termed the Conference on Some Living Religions Within the Empire, and then finally, you move to Rome and to the uh, Second Vatican Council of the 1960s uh, with a special focus on the landmark document uh, Nostra Aetate, which um, set out, um, set, I, I think, really a new path for the Catholic Church's relations to non-Christian uh, religions. And so first, uh, what, what was it about these particular moments, these three moments, um, that led you to chose them to focus on? Why were they such significant milestones in the history of the modern interfaith uh, movement? Yeah, I, uh, I, would, I would be glad to. Um, I mean, two conceptual ideas that I was playing with in the book. One is that of a turning point, uh, one tool that historians have in their toolkit, especially when they're encountering a, a complex multi-dimension, multi-dimension phenomenon is if they can isolate some key turning points that brought that about. So I, I was, uh, uh, that was very much in the forefront of my mind. Um, the others is a conceptual distinction made by the social theorist Edward Shield between the center and periphery. And he argues that it's often you know, in, in centers um, that uh, important events, influential events take place. Uh, so I, I argue in the book that all of these three events that you, you just uh, outlined, the one in Chicago in 1893, and in London in 1924, and then in Rome, and in the Second Vatican Council, were turning points that took place in major, major centers at critical, critical times. Chicago is sort of a major city in the, the young United States as it's uh, you know, completing its Western march. London, the, the metropole of, a, of an empire upon which the sun never set, and Rome being the, you know, the, the spiritual um, uh, city for global global Catholicism. So uh, that was some of the um, thinking that went in my mind between choosing you know, these um, uh, you know these these three events. I think you had a second part of your question, but I, I lost it. Okay. Yeah. Well. I. Yeah. Just really, why? Why they were such significant milestones, um, but maybe we can get at that by thinking a little bit about the individual events. Um, and so, Chicago first, um, uh, eighteen ninety three. Um, 
this chapter, as well as all, all three of them, or really the whole book, contains uh, a lot of interesting stories, colorful per- personalities, um, striking episodes. I wonder, as you think about Chicago, the, the world's, um, uh, the Parliament of Religions, was there an episode or two there that sort of stand out to you as being particularly significant or an outcome from that, um, that gathering um, that, that has especially you know, significant long-term consequence? Uh, sure. I mean, this is a fascinating event. Uh, I, I find it just captivating. But uh, I mean, a little bit about its origins. Um, this was a World's Fair. It was supposed to take place in 1892 to celebrate Columbus's discoveries. This was back in a time when people were not that troubled about Columbus's legacy. Uh, so that was the idea. It's a tradition of World's Fairs that goes back to the, the Crystal Palace exhibition in London in 1851. And a number have been taking place in other major um, uh, major cities prior to Chicago. Uh, because of planning delays, however, it didn't take place in 1892, but in 1893. But some of the movers and shakers involved thought that it was too material in nature, that they were, it was just a World's Fair about sort of industrial progress and America's achievements and um, uh, science and discovery. So they thought there, there needed to be a spiritual dimension uh, to this fair. And um, one individual in particular who had a, a background in theosophy and another Presbyterian uh, minister, John Henry Barrows, conceived the idea to invite uh, uh, exponents of different religions throughout the world to Chicago to have this first ever Parliament of World Religions, uh, just to, um, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a sense of camaraderie and peace and understanding. There was very much a 19th century uh, sense of progress and um, humanity's achievements uh, at the fore of this. Uh, but it, but it was also something of a uh, Protestant event at the same time. Um, there was a, a real sense <clears throat> that um, um, America was a Protestant country and uh, it had the industrial capacity and know-how to pull this off and invited the you know, different religions throughout the world. Uh, so I, I can say much more about that, but you, you asked for maybe two episodes. Uh, I think this is a moment where uh, Eastern thought, as in um, uh, uh, Hindu-Buddhist philosophy, was introduced to the United States in a major way, especially through this one figure, um, uh, Swami Vivekananda, uh, who um, uh, was a, a Hindu holy man and scholar and uh, had been edu- educated in British missionary schools. So he, he spoke impeccable English. Uh, but he really sort of made a case for um, uh, his faith, a uh, uh, particular type of Vedanta Hindu philosophy. And, and uh, for me, Americans, this is the first time they'd ever heard of an individual uh, uh, like that. So um, I think that would have been one consequence of it. Uh, it also produced division as well. The, uh, the uh, you know, many of uh, a more conservative temperament worried this is an example of syncretism or relativism. Uh, the evangelist Dwight Moody set up a, a, a revival in Chicago that was deliberately sort of a counterpoint to the parliament itself. Uh, both the Ottoman Sultan and the Archbishop of Canterbury also uh, voiced reservations uh, about it sort of for similar reasons that Moody had. This is an example of relativism or, or syncretism. So 
Um, I mean, one sub-theme of the book is that sometimes interfaith dialogue, um, although it, I, I think it does much good, it sometimes has produced internecine divisions within religious traditions over the very viability or uh, productivity of interfaith dialogue itself. Yeah, I, that was a thread that, that really stood out to me. That, that, that seemed to be a persistent theme throughout each one of these moments, um, and, and which I think continues on after them, really, down to today. Um, maybe we'll have a chance to get back to that. On the London, um, at the London Conference of 1924, the, you, you, you give a fair amount of um, attention to uh, this colorful figure, Sir Francis uh, Youngblood, um, what were what were the aims with this conference, and and um, what what's what, what's what are the big takeaways for us from that um, event? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Francis, uh, young husband. I'm sorry, um, young husband. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, yeah. F- uh, fiction couldn't couldn't invent this guy. He, he he was an imperialist of the old school. He uh, he chaired the committee of the the first ascent of Mount Everest. Uh, he led the very controversial um, British invasion of Tibet in 1902. But also in Tibet, he had this religious epiphany of sorts that that, that all religions uh, somehow uh, spoke of of ultimate joy and they were uh, joined in some fashion. Um, When he was back in London, he was invited to be the keynote speaker of this event that took place in 1924, which is a world fair of, of itself in ways, but it was just to celebrate the British Empire. So it was a uh, it was a different type of event. Uh, but some organizers of this event had the idea, self-consciously actually modeling themselves on what took place at Chicago in 1893, would to do some kind of dialogue, uh, uh, an event that would that would profile and, and bring to London um, what they called native expositors. Of different uh, religions within the British Empire, and so something uh, quite uh, um, similar to Chicago was staged at the time. Um, but Young Husband was just enthusiastic about it, and he was the real force that led to subsequent conferences. And in 1936, a conference law launched sort of under his energy and organization. A um, uh, an organization called the World's Congress of Faith that exists to this uh, to this day, uh, but it was a very peculiar event. He's a peculiar he's a peculiar person because, in one sense, he has this universal sense of religion, but he also thinks that religion sort of improbably can be like the glue to the British Empire. So he's, he's untroubled by empire uh, at the same time. He's an enthusiast for interfaith uh, and interfaith dialogue. So. Um, yeah, he, he's quite a he's quite a character. <laughs> and then in the the last of these moments, you turn toward you turn to the Second Vatican Council. Obviously, a momentous event in the history, uh, not just of the Catholic Church, but really, um, uh, really for for modern Christianity and even beyond Christianity as a whole. And you look at Nostra Aetate. Um, anything, anything particularly, um, as you were working on this material, you were familiar probably with the broad, um, contours of it, anything particularly striking, uh, for you as you were, um, uh, looking about how this document came to be and, and, and some of the, um, the discussion around it and outcome from it, what stands out to you from the, uh, the second Vatican council? Yeah, I mean, this, in, in some ways, this is similar to the other events, but here you have a church body wrestling with interfaith dialogue, and so that it's, it's different from the other two in that, um, in that respect. 
And the Catholic Church had a lot of reservations about interfaith dialogue, often seeing it as a, sort of a Protestant thing. Uh, the Catholic hierarchy did participate in Chicago in 1893, but many of them were reprimanded afterwards. And so there was real reservation in Rome about, um, uh, about interfaith dialogue. Pope Pius XI once spoke of, quote, uh, promiscuous religious gatherings. Um, but there was a major rethink, reboot, if you will, at the Second Vatican Council, but it was not intended from the beginning. Um, uh, Pope John XXIII called the council, surprised the world, when he called the council to be into, uh, to, to happen in, in 1959. It took place between 1962 and 65 and produced 16 different documents. Um, and and Nostra Aetate was probably one of the most radical um, uh, that caused um, a good bit of controversy. But it, it began uh, really as a statement on Christian-Jewish relations, or especially Catholic-Jewish relations. Um, a number of Jews, uh, especially from France, had approached the Pope uh, prior to the Council's beginning, uh, arguing, advocating that in the, in the post-Holocaust world, uh, a major topic of the Council should be Jewish-Catholic relations and recognition of some of the anti-Semitic uh, uh, currents uh, that have been afoot in the Church in the past, and John XXIII was Persuaded, uh, he leaned heavily on uh, uh, a figure, German uh, Jesuit Augustin Bea, um, who helped various iterations of this, this document. But uh, I was saying it began as a Catholic Jewish document, uh, but a number of bishops in the Middle East became worried that the statement would be seen as a kind of a pro-Zionist statement. This was after Israel had been founded in 1948. And uh, there was real concern of how the document would be uh, seen in the Middle East. So they began advocating uh, that, you know, it needs to touch on Islam as well and, and Christian-Muslim uh, relations. But then there's a sort of a domino effect. Then the bishops in South Asia begin to say, well, if you're talking about Jews and you're talking about uh, uh, Muslims, you need to see something about the, um, uh, Eastern uh, or South Asian traditions as well. And so what began as a Catholic Jewish document sort of morphed into a larger statement about interfaith dialogue, trying very delicately to balance the, the church's um, proclamation of mission uh, or evangelization and uh, dialogue um, uh, uh, at, at the time. But it, you know, it, it took a very circuitous route of, uh, through, the, uh, through, the, through the coffin. Tell, I wonder, as you were working on this uh, project, whether there were any, um, you encountered any big surprises, anything that, that you didn't expect to find um, either in the historical record uh, that you came across or insights uh, that you gleaned from working on this material that generated new, new, you know, new ways of thinking about this for you. Any big surprises? Yeah, I mean, probably is terrible. Um, I mean, one I would articulate it, it made me just think much more about the whole category of religion. Um, I mean, I, I felt like this is something I've been thinking about, uh, you know, for quite a bit of my scholarly career, but it really focused my attention on just the etymological development of religion uh, uh, and the uses of language and their limitations, because a lot of um, Interfaith dialogue has been justified about what we would in the West call the great world religions, and we usually have an idea of 10 or 12 religions that we would trot out 
Um, but the word religion, uh, it goes back to the Latin uh, uh, root, uh, meaning to bind something together. Uh, it was as it was used in most of the ancient or medieval world, or probably best translated as piety, kind of reverence or devotion. Um, and Thomas Aquinas and his Summa Theologia, you know, listed as a, a type of virtue. And it's really only in the Enlightenment in the 19th century where it's developed sort of as a, a genus word, and as religions, plural, with sort of some other uh, um, uh, species uh, designated under under that. And that it's seen as something that's detachable and discreet from the political world or the social world. So the development of the, the Enlightenment and the French and American revolutions and the influence of the thought of John Locke. Uh, but many other cultures haven't had that history. And so think of religion as something easily detachable or, or at least isolatable and definable from these other um, domains. As a, uh, 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 sort of a different mindset. And so I, I think that's one thing is I, I read scholars like Talal Al-Sad and Wilfred uh, Patwell Smith, and, um, uh, Dale Kavanaugh and others who've uh, done a lot of nuanced work on just the, the nature of religion and the terms, um, uh, the terms we use. So I, I think that was, that was probably one big learning, uh, uh, learning for me. And, um, yeah, I'll stop there. I, I imagine that working on a project of this nature um, uh, brings you into contact with many interesting people and places. I, uh, did you have any uh, especially memorable experiences uh, in uh, working on the project that became this book? Yeah, I mean, it, it really, um, you know, uh, globalize my my reading i think and and traveling to an extent uh because it, you know while there is some continuity with things i've done in the past there, there is an element of discontinuity as, as well got to work in some wonderful archives the francis young husband's uh, papers uh, are at the british library in london um, i had an opportunity to work in the vatican archives uh, especially looking at some of the the documents and, and the various drafts and and letters and commentary around the, the development of um, Nostra Aetate at the Second Vatican Council. Uh, but I also thought, since I'm not really a practitioner of interfaith dialogue or of a historian, I, I, I should have some broader grasp of what, what is going on. So um, through various friends and contacts, I, I, uh, I attended the um, uh, the, uh, the Parliament of World Religions in, in Chicago, that this goes back to the 1893. Uh, even, even then, there was the idea to develop this into a, a, a continuous organization. It didn't happen with Chicago the way one did go out of London in 1924. But at the time of the centennial of the event in 1993, um, a number of uh, people uh, kind of re revived it, and it, it has met you know every few years the world's parliament of religion that sees itself as something of a flagship event for the interfaith movement so i had an opportunity to attend um, that meeting in, in toronto in um, 2018 uh, i also spent some time in, in, in new delhi and was uh, in conversation especially with um, some jesuits who had long been involved in um, christian hindu muslim dialogue in delhi uh, I made a trip to Cairo and actually participated in a scriptural reasoning project 
I could say more about that, uh, what, what that is, but I'd also just mention now going to, and maybe this is one of the more moving and instructive things for me was going to, um, to Bosnia and the Balkans and, and visiting an interfaith group there uh, who had a, a very sort of particular concern of, uh, you know, not trying to wrestle with the big questions and the abstract, the nature of the Trinity, the nature of God, but just helping people, especially young people, come to grips with the, with the ethnic and religious violence in Bosnia in the 1890s, involving Orthodox Serbs and Bosnian Muslims and, and Catholics. And, uh, and I, I was quite moved by some of their, uh, some of their work. So, um, I mean, this was very, uh, some of this makes it into the book, some, some of it does not, but uh, I think it gave me a better kind of global grasp you know, out, outside of what's going on in the United States, the, the global interfaith dialogue scene. Yeah. So, so you, as you say, you, you yourself are not a, a practitioner of interreligious dialogue, but you had uh, a lot of um, engagement with people who are sort of working in the field. Yeah, I guess this is sort of like ethnographic work, if you will. I, I say I say I'm not, but when I again when I was directing the center at uh, at Gordon College, or willy nilly, I found myself organizing interfaith dialogues because of student interest after 9/11. So I, you know, I, I didn't I come up through a, a religious studies program or uh, an academic institution, or this is the the focus of my academic work. Um, but I think it was just finding myself in that situation led me to ask questions, which then let me want to sort of get a feel for the types of things that were uh, that were uh, going on. So I was a, you know, I, I guess I did participate in some of these, but there was there was sort of an ethnographic uh, element to my to my uh, to my inquiries to my travel. Well, I'm I'm guessing that a lot of people who pick up your book and and um, and and read your book come to it because uh, they are interested in or directly engaged uh, in doing interfaith work right now. And um, so as we look back on the development of interreligious dialogue, as you do in your book, do you think that there are lessons that we can take from knowing something about the history of the movement that would uh, serve us well to keep in mind um, going forward? Or or do you have advice for people um, doing interfaith work today um, based on what you found in, in working on this book? Yeah, I offer, you know, in, in the conclusion, I, I don't offer a lot of prescriptive advice, but I, I, I try to, um, uh, you know, call attention to some things that I've learned in the process. Uh, one, I, I would just say to not, not to have amnesia about the, the, the task itself. And, I, and whatever we do, we do a better job of it if we, if we understand the, uh, uh, the forces and uh, elements in the past that have brought us into the current, uh, current moment. So, um, you know, my, my job in historicizing it is not to like explain it away or something, but to just provide some 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 context using my skill set uh, as as a historian. Um, I, I probably you know uh, I think where the trouble sometimes begins for many of the practitioners is um, uh, in these more kind of parliament style events when when you sort of assume there is one clear representative of faith a that's speaking of faith b and it stays really just at the, the theological expert uh, uh level uh, not really having much of that of an impact on um uh on, on others and uh you know not and um 
not sort of the elite discourse. And that was one of the reasons I was so impressed by what was going on in Bosnia. Uh, this was a, it was uh, much more proximate goals, just to, uh, just to bring young people into contact with one another, um, apart from the narratives they might hear, you know, in their own religious and ethnic communities. Uh, one especially moving thing that they did is when there were acts of, say, vandalism at a mosque, the Center of Faith Dialogue would help like deploy a Catholic priest to the area just to just show his solidarity and support uh, you know, what he could do for the, uh, for the community. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, having not the uh, deep or major goals, but more proximate goals uh, was, a, um, um, was, was a worthwhile um, thing that I, that I learned. Uh, I was also impressed by uh, an organization called the Scriptural Reasoning Project um, associated especially with a Jewish theologian, Peter Ox at the University of Virginia, and has been picked up by a number of theologians uh, as well. Uh, many of them have been influenced by sort of post-liberal strands of theology, George Limbach and, uh, and, and, uh, and others. Um, and that's just to try to, not, not really to do these big tent operations, but to bring uh, people together uh, to read one another's sacred texts in the presence of others, so especially Jewish and Christian. Uh, and Muslim has sort of an Abrahamic focus. And, uh, uh, and here again, the, the, the goal is not to uh, resolve the deepest theological questions, but um, and I, I love this phrasing, it's, it's to produce better quality disagreement. Uh, sometimes we just speak past one another with ignorance or stereotypes, but if, if you can just produce better quality disagreement in an irenic and peaceful context, that, that might be a, a, a worthwhile goal, you know, in, in and of itself. Um, so you are a historian, uh, Tal, you're not a prophet, you're not a fortune teller, um, but I wonder if on the basis of what you've observed and of the historical work that you've done, if you have any uh, insight into what the near future holds uh, for uh, interreligious dialogue, any predictions about where uh, that's going, or, or any hopes um, for uh, where where you think that um, inter, uh, interfaith work might uh, might go, where it might take us uh, in the in the sort of near to medium term future. Uh, well, yeah, I, I would have to echo again. I, I am no prophet or future futurologist, and uh, we historians, we often look at the past. We we want to have some influence, I suppose, in the present and future, but it's a it's a very difficult um, a difficult thing. And, and I think we, we all know just the, the contingencies of history, and you you don't know what's coming down the uh, the road. Uh, you know, I, I see, you know, that we have, you know, quite a few places. You can go all the, the global hotspots and talk about different religious and ethnic uh, uh, tensions uh, that take place. So I, I think there is an ongoing need uh, for careful thought and practice, um, you know, in these areas. Um, I do hope there would be, you know, more attention to um, uh, religious violence, you know, sometimes I think that's a misnomer, you know, often when there's religious violence, there's a lot more going on, but it just gets named religious violence. So there's usually a, a linguistic, a, a geographical, historical, ethnic component, but, um, you know, when it's just labeled religious violence, uh, that, that can be. So I, I hope in the future there'll be more attention to that, that, that things are usually not boiled down to uh, religious violence. And, I actually, the, the current 
project I'm working on, one of the current projects I'm working on, is, is violence in the name of very secularist ideologies in the, in the 20th century. I think it's an important um, uh, factor to keep uh, to keep in mind. You know, I think for Christian communities, um, and I think other religious communities, but I can only speak of Christian communities, uh, I would hope and think there will be more careful thought about the relationship between dialogue and mission, um, how you balance the, um, uh, the scriptural mandate to um, proclaim or great commission or evangelization or whatever you want to call it, with the need to engage others in serious dialogue and recognize them as others and learn from them in ways. And um, you know, there, I think there are many ways to go wrong uh, in this area to you know, emphasize mission or just proselytizing uh, in a very narrow sense at the expense of dialogue or, or to uh, um, uh, you know, refuse to do any form of, of, of mission and make it all dialogue. There's been a lot of you know, complex debates uh, and a lot of careful thought on that. So I'm not sure if that's a prediction, but I, I hope and think there will be more careful thought uh, uh, in these areas uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the future. And some, you know, one of the, I mentioned in the conclusion of the book that uh, many evangelical communities, you know, reflecting Dwight Moody's um, stance toward the Chicago event of 1893 have been skeptical of interfaith dialogue and sometimes actually, you know, excluded from it. Um, and I know the, uh, in the 1893, there, there were no uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, no, no Mormons were even invited to that, because that, that was too, that was still too big of a division, you know, within Christianity and too much, too many concerns about that. So, but, but now in the 1990s, there's this pretty uh, robust Mormon evangelical dialogue that was taking place. Um, uh, and, um, you know, so I, I think as, you know, different voices come to the fore, there'll be, uh, there'll be uh, more, uh, uh, greater perspectives and, uh, um, and, uh, you know, uh, potential for, potential for learning from one another. Tal, thanks so much. I, I, I'm, I'm just curious, you mentioned, um, one of the projects you're currently working on has to do with religious violence. Does that imply that there are other projects that you're working on as well? Yeah, I perhaps somewhat foolishly agreed a number of years ago to do a general intellectual history of modern Christian theology um, uh, for Princeton University Press. So I, I've been sort of uh, slowly chugging away at that for a number a num number of years, and uh, it's uh, uh, it will get there eventually. But it, it feels like sometimes rowing rowing across the Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> and now, is this a is this a history of uh, Christian theology from the beginning, or are you? No, no, yeah, I'm sorry. It's it's really it's really a post French Revolution story. I, I I began the first chapter deals with the um, sort of the implosion of the French university system at the time of the French Revolution, and then several decades later, the the founding of the University of Berlin as a sort of a new. Um, Kind of research model university um, that involves the, the, the theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher. So it's it's more of a modern story, but I'm I'm trying to avoid just the sort of the, the great man, great text um, approach. But uh, it'll be uh, you know more contextualized and a, more of an institutional uh, uh, story. So it, it's and mostly my, I mean my strengths are in the 19th century. So I'm probably most of it will concern the 19th century. Taking what I've done on the Protestant uh, side and, and trying to expand it a little more, and coming up to the uh, you know around this time of the Second Vatican Council or a little a little after, um, 
that, put up by the uh, the editor. Um, you know, asked me to you know keep you know, a more general audience. Admittedly, if you're interested in modern theology, you're you're probably peculiar and not and not general in in the, in the first place. But try try to keep a larger audience uh, in mind. Um, so that, that's the challenge. I keep working on that project. Great. Well, uh, very much look forward to seeing uh, that. Tal, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, thank you so much for your uh, for your book. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks once again to Tal and to Eric for that engaging conversation. After finishing the faith of others, one of my main takeaways was how much the institutional world of interreligious dialogue, and by that I mean the centers that host dialogues, the universities that employ those who write about dialogue how those institutions have been shaped by events outside of the strictly religious sphere. The areas of European colonialism shaped much of the early interreligious dialogue uh, conversation. And by the time we get to Vatican II, the shadow of the Holocaust hangs over the conversation, as does the rise in nationalism in the post-colonial world. And today, much of the energy around interreligious dialogue is from the wake of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, and the broader concerns about specifically Christian-Muslim encounters. And it's an ever-present reality, maybe. This is a truism, but one that we need to remind ourselves that religion, a problematic term that Tao actually highlights in the book as having distinct origins, the way we talk about religions and what counts as a religion and what doesn't. That's all to say that reality is never isolated from the rest of the world that these interreligious dialogues can never just be about religion or about um, particular ideas, but that they are enmeshed in politics, culture, and everything else. At the end here, I actually want to give another book recommendation. We don't usually do this, but uh, this one has an upper house connection, an EUW connection. So we want to make the space to recommend Charles Cohen's The Abrahamic Religions, A Very Short Introduction, a book that came out early in 2020, one of our last in-person events before COVID hosted Chuck, who taught for decades here at UW and in the history department uh, and produced this really slim volume in the very short introduction series by Oxford University Press that gives a wide scope for looking at the interaction between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so while Tal's book really zeroes in on the last 100 and 150 years, though he does spend the first part of the book even before that, Chuck goes all the way back thousands of years to give us the highest sweep of the braided histories between the three Abrahamic religions. And that might be a very good follow-up to reading Tao's book and getting the more recent history of interreligious dialogue. Of course, some of the engagement that Chuck looks at in his book is dialogue, but a lot of it is um, other types of engagement, including um, borrowing and conflict and war um, and uh, movements of peoples and, and all the other things you can imagine in the relationship between these three massive world religions. Okay, with that, thank you for your listening. And until next time, go in peace. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. 
Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.